بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم ما بعد We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Now continuing Ethics in the Real World by Singer. We are doing God and Suffering again. The conservative commentator Dinesh D'Souza is on a mission to debate atheists on the topic of the existence of God. Are you, are you familiar with Dinesh D'Souza? Yeah. He's, he's this Desi guy. He's, uh, he's not just a conservative commentator. He's very conservative, and he's uh, essentially an evangelical Christian. Uh, I think he, uh, I don't remember, but I want to say he may have been a convert, but uh, that part, no, I'm confusing him with this other guy, the governor of Louisiana. But <clears throat> he, I'm sorry? Oh, so, so he, he has a, a couple of books. He, um, he has made a couple of anti-Obama movies. Um, and then he also went to jail for, for some misconduct. Uh, uh, so he, he's quite a character himself. Right. Um, so he wants to take down atheists. So let's see what's going on. Um, he has been challenging all the prominent ones he can find and has debated Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, and Michael Strimmer. Sure. So Daniel Dennett uh, is a philosopher. He writes a lot about consciousness. Christopher Hitchens, he, he died a couple years ago. He was a person who was a super hardcore leftist, and then after 9-11, he became um, an imperialist, meaning he used to be super anti-imperialism, and then when 9-11 happened, he became super pro-imperialism. He has always been very critical of religion, and in his last few years, he became super critical of religion. Michael Shermer, uh, I think he's a scientist. Um, he writes a lot about philosophy and logic, and so he may or may not actually be a scientist, uh, but he also is one of those guys who challenges people, okay, prove to me you can do something supernatural. and the debate took place at Biola University. The name Biola comes from Bible Institute of Los Angeles, which tells you that the predominant religious orientation of, of the audience was. Given that I was debating an experienced and evidently intelligent opponent, I wanted to stake my position on firm ground. So I argued that while I cannot disprove the existence of every possible kind of deity, we can be sure that we do not live in a world that was created by a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. Okay, so <clears throat> this is an interesting point. He's saying, I can't disprove every possible kind of God. But the God I can disprove is one who's all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. What do you think about that? Is that how we look at Allah? Like, that Allah is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good? Yeah. yeah. I say all-powerful, definitely. All-knowing, definitely. Uh, good, I don't think we apply to Allah. That by default, if we have to choose between good and not good, we're going to say good. Yeah. Um, but as you'll see, um, he's going to take that down. Uh, so we say whatever comes from Allah is good. Mm -hmm. Right? And whatever is bad is whatever your own hands have done. Mm -hmm. Right? And that's a few ways to read it. One is that Allah Ta'ala, everything he's giving us is good. Like, for example, we saw in the Rumi class yesterday that even dung, you know, which is filth, is used for cleaning, mm -hmm. right? Um, um, as well as uh, how we perceive of what Allah is giving us, we might decide is bad. 
right? Like we say, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Um, so what Allah Ta'ala might be hitting me with, I might decide is bad, but is actually good for me. So if we are receiving only good, can we follow the source of that good? So we could. I'm just saying it. Uh, good doesn't apply. So another way to think about this is that uh, if everything we're, we're receiving is creation, does that mean the source is creation? No. Right. Uh, and so, but naturally out of adab, we'd say um, he is good. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm just saying it doesn't apply to him. Okay. But like which attribute would it be? So all powerful would be what? Al Qadir. Al Qadir, yeah. All knowing? Aren't there multiple for that? Yeah, and even, even for, for all-powerful, you could do Qadr, you could yeah. do Qadir, uh, and then Al-Alim, Al-Khabir, yeah. right? Uh, but what would be good? That's not one of his attributes. It's not? Or think about it. Think about whatever would be closest. I don't know, I have to go through all names. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Okay, so that's essentially what he's saying. He's saying, I can't refute every type of God, but this one I can. Yeah. Christians, of course, think we do live in such a world. Yet a powerful reason for doubting this confronts us every day. The world contains a vast amount of pain and suffering. If God is all-knowing, he knows how much suffering there is. If he is all-powerful, he could have created a world without so much suffering. If he is all-good, he surely would have created a world without so much suffering. What do you think about that argument? Logical. Yeah, that's very logical. It's very straightforward. Yeah. Right. So if he is al alim, he knows how much suffering there is. If he is al qadir, he could have made a world without so much suffering. But if he's al good, right, um, then he would have created a world without so much suffering. Okay. Continue. Why can't he yeah. be all good, but we just can't see? Uh-huh. Like, like, you know, like our definition of good is what brings us pleasure right away, or like happiness right away, but uh-huh. that might not be always good for us. Uh-huh. So why can't he be all good and uh-huh. still create a world of suffering? Yeah, so then this it comes down to how we define what good is. Okay. Right. Uh, I think all-powerful and all-knowing is easy to, yeah. to define. All good becomes super subjective. If we mean all good from a dunya sense, um, even there, uh, does it mean uh, all pleasure? What if I'm someone who's full of self-hate and I'm a sadist masochist, then I want all pain, right? That's subjective. Um, If we connect this with one of the previous essays where we're trying to figure out is there like some universal morality, Mm -hmm. and then that big book said um, everyone has a desire to avoid Misery or suffering, right? So uh, good could mean from a dunya sense, no suffering, mm-hmm. right? Which is, which is what we're talking about this NSA. Mm-hmm. But if you add the day of judgment, then we're saying this world is, is temporary and unfair, right? And full fairness plays out on the day of judgment. Okay, so basically we can't take that into consideration Well, I mean, we could respond by saying this is how we look at it, yeah. right? Um, um, he's basically, he is assumed in his, what he's saying is 
There's no Achira. Wait, he's the atheist. He's the atheist. Oh, oops, okay. Yeah. Okay, now I guess. Okay. Okay. All right, continue. Um... Christians usually respond that God bestowed on us the gift of free will, and so is not responsible for the evil we do. This response fails to deal with the suffering of those who drown in floods, are burned alive in forest fires caused by lightning, or die of hunger or thirst during a drought. So what is his argument in this paragraph? That the evil in this world is not just from ourselves. Yeah. The bad things that happen isn't just because of what you do. Yeah external factors that you have no control over. Yeah, like nature, right? So if uh, if we base it all on free will, then we can say, well, I'm suffering because of what this person did. That's their free will. But what about natural acts of disaster? No. Sometimes Christians attempt to explain the suffering by saying that all humans are sinners and so deserve their fate, even if it is a horrible one. But infants and small children are just as likely to suffer and die in natural disasters as adults. And it seems impossible that they could deserve to suffer and die. Yet, according to traditional Christian doctrine, since they have descended from Eve, they inherit the original sin of their mother, who defied God's decree against eating from the tree of knowledge. This is a triply repellent idea, for it implies, firstly, that knowledge is a bad thing, secondly, that disobeying God's will is the greatest sin of all, and thirdly, that children inherit the sins of their ancestors and may justly be punished for them. Okay, so what's he arguing here? Saying that Christians believe that, like, one argument is that people deserve the fate that they receive. Yeah. And then he's Why? Because of the sin of Eve. Yeah, the or even be, before getting to the, the, the sin of Eve, the default outlook here is that we're all sinners. Yeah. But then he says, what about babies? Right, and then from there, the sin of Eve, and then how does he respond to that? And then he says, "Well, that has many, many things that yeah. you could rebuttal with." And he says, "It implies knowledge is bad." Yeah. And why does it imply knowledge is bad? Because where does it say that? Because because she took from the tree of knowledge. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah, so that was a sentence taken from the tree of knowledge. So that implies that knowledge is bad. Yeah. And then disobeying God's will is the greatest of all sins. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that one? Like, it should be a sin, but it should not incur like, destruction for generations to come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's that third point. So he's basically saying, it's just not fair that I have to pay a, a price for someone else. Yeah. So, looking from an Islamic lens, how would you modify all this? Like what the Christians say? Yeah, or um, either his his attack on Christian on Christianity, or how would you replace the Christian doctrine with a Muslim doctrine? So start, well, we're not yeah. being punished; we're being tested. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a very big thing, uh, in the sense that uh, every moment of this dunya is a test. And, and I mean, of course, like we talked about before, no one ever talks about how to pass the test and such. That's, uh, that should be part of the conversation. But we're saying this world is not the end-all, be-all. This world is literally test. And then day of judgment is when we get accounted for, for our test. Uh, what you will find <coughs> is that, okay, and you've probably heard this from me before, that, like, one of the points of religion is to help you navigate the world. Mm -hmm. And... 
I'm, I'm admitting being totally biased, but I'm suggesting that the Islamic view of how the world works is the most comprehensive and the, and the easiest way to explain everything and to make sense of everything. Starting with the point that this whole world is a test created by Allah. So then, whether it's a crime committed against me uh, by myself, or a crime committed against me by someone else, or I'm hit with a natural disaster, every one of those is a test. And, and so how do I pass the test of suffering? I persevere through it, and I keep a good impression, or a good uh, impression of Allah, a good opinion of Allah. I may, however, have an obligation in dunya for justice. Right? If it's a crime committed by a person. Or at the very least, I may have the invitation for forgiveness. But if it's like a natural disaster, um, if I'm the one who's witnessing someone else suffering through a natural disaster, like their house burns down, I may have an obligation to them to help them, and then that becomes my test, right? And 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 then what else do we say? Um, what is our view about a baby who's dying? That they will receive no more than here. Yeah, they're gonna go to paradise. And the way to think about this, we often frame it as though you start out at zero, and then either you go to heaven or you go to hell. But no, our default is you're at general for those. Okay. And either you remain up there, or you re-earn it, or you step down and down and down. So the default of a baby, as soon as the baby's born, is to go to genital for those. There are, there's a group the, uh, in our history, the Mu'tazila, that would go with the argument that that's not just, that just is that you start at zero. And so, for them, what happens to a baby who dies? The baby is in a place that's neither in heaven or hell. Okay. So that's Mu'tazila theology. Sunni theology is that your default is top level of Jannah. But is their argument is that that's not just. Their solution is also not just. Explain. Because the baby wasn't given an opportunity like other people mm -hmm. to make a way for them in the good or bad direction. So, so one of the responses to that becomes... Uh, uh, what about the 80-year-old who's going to hell? The 80-year-old who's going to hell would say to Allah, well, why didn't you make me die when I was a baby? Mm -hmm. Because then I wouldn't go to hell. Right? And so then from that perspective, it would be best to be like the Pharaoh, who just wiped out a bunch of babies and sends them all to heaven. What do you think? Wait, but from the more positive perspective, those babies wouldn't go to heaven. Oh, good point, good point. So, <clears throat> so yeah, that part's fair. Okay, so even in Sunni theology, uh, what about the 80-year-old who, who says to Allah, why didn't you kill me? Why didn't you take my life when I was a baby? Then I'd go straight to paradise. Then what? Because then it sounds like the Pharaoh did a good deed. Then it sounds like Assad is doing a good deed. 
you know, or all these other tyrants that committed genocide. Well, maybe we can include the attribute of Allah being all-knowing, and, you know, well, like, even if those babies didn't die, they still would have lived good lives and gone to heaven. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but then that still doesn't answer that question, like... Well, what would happen to, what's happening to the Pharaoh and these other tyrants? What's happening to the Pharaoh on the other side? I mean, they're getting punished. So he's going to hell. Yeah. Right? So at the end of the day, if I'm Pharaoh, I might be sending a hundred thousand, I might be sending a million people to paradise. But if I'm in hell, I'm not going to have any satisfaction or anything like that. I'm going to be in hell. I'm probably going to be in a low, low pit of hell. Right? So, so that's, that's one way to look at it. Another issue is that the time of your death is already set. Okay. And you will, uh, when you become balir, which is usually like after puberty or when your intellect develops, uh, you will see that you're actually, you are earning your akhira. Right? So the 80-year-old earned akhira. Okay. And he can complain to Allah, you know, why didn't you, you know, take me then, then I wouldn't be in hell. But the response could be, but you had, you know, 80 years to go to the top level of heaven. Right? Mm -hmm. And so you had, you had a better opportunity, but you blew it. See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. yeah, reflect on it for a while. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, let's continue to the next paragraph. Um, even if one were to accept all this, however, the problem remains unresolved. For humans are not only the victims of floods, fires, and droughts. Animals, too, suffer from these events, and since they are not descended from Adam and Eve, they cannot have inherited original sin. Okay, what do you, what's, what's he saying there? Now he is saying that that argument is invalid because... Humans are not the only beings that suffer. Yeah. So suffering cannot be traced back to the original sin. Yeah. That animals are suffering. They don't have original sin. So why are they suffering? Okay. What's our answer to that? To animal suffering? Yeah. Are animals being tested? No. Our, our vast majority of you is no, animals are not being tested. That they are part of the world. We have obligations to treat animals humanely. We also have obligations to treat plants humanely. Right? And there is a fictional story uh, uh, from our tradition from like a, um, probably like about 1,200 years ago where all these animals go to the Day of Judgment to complain to Allah about how they were treated. So you know how, like, in the Day of Judgment, your hands are going to be witness against you? You know, this, you know, this person made me do such and such, because the hand doesn't have free will, right? And so, so this fictional story is basically saying these animals are going to complain to Allah on the Day of Judgment and testify against you, right, for how you treated them and such. So it's a test for us. It's a test for us, yeah. And part of the test for us is to treat them humanely. In earlier times, when original sin was taken more seriously than it generally is today, the suffering of animals posed a particularly difficult problem for thoughtful Christians. 
The 17th century French philosopher René Descartes solved it by the drastic expedient of denying that animals can suffer. They are, he maintained, merely ingenious mechanisms, and we should not take their cries and struggles as a sign of pain any more than we take the noise of an alarm clock as a sign that it has consciousness. That claim is unlikely to convince anyone who lives with a dog or a cat. So what do you think? What do you think about Descartes' argument? He was just trying to find an excuse yeah. to make his argument work. Yeah, <clears throat> unfortunately, um, this is what we also do in our community in matters of Zabiha. Right, that uh, the vast majority of people who are super concerned about zabiha meat don't really care about how the animal is treated from birth until slaughter. Right, that's not even their question. Their question is about that last hour. Okay, and not even that last hour; those ten minutes when when its neck is being cut. So the animal could have been abused its whole life. And as long as the slaughter is Zabiha style, then, I mean, Zabiha basically means cut, right? Um, as long as the slaughter is done Zabiha style, then people don't care, right? And so one of the problems is that we, uh, uh, when we get too caught up in one aspect of the fiqh, then we do effectively dehumanize an animal. You know, that's probably not even the right word, but, you know, we we abuse the animal. Assumed in the rules on Zabiha is that the animal is treated humanely from start to finish. Even the process of slaughter should be humane, meaning what often happens is that you're separating the animal for a time, you know, before you actually take it for slaughter. Okay. But with mass slaughter, you know, you're basically electrocuting the animal, putting it through essentially a machine. So you're basically treating it like, you know, literally a piece of meat. And so that's a problem in how we approach a lot of these things in our contemporary world. And a friend of mine who used to um, work in, like, who I think their family owned a farm, they said that the, the, the Muslim restaurants and the Muslim businesses would always get the lowest grade meat because that was the cheapest, because competition was so fierce. So a lot of times the... the Zabiha meat you get from a butcher's shop or from a, a Zabiha restaurant is lowest quality meat. What do you think? I remember someone once asked a sheikh, they said, is it better to eat meat that you know is super like healthy, organic, like grass-fed, all yeah. that stuff, yeah. and like it's been treated kindly and stuff, or, but it's not Zabiha. Or is it better to, or do you pick the meat that was slaughtered to be a hot style, but it is, it, you know that it wasn't treated properly and that it was just treated mm -hmm. terribly, like all the things you said. And the sheikh said, like he thought about it and he said it's a really difficult question, but he yeah. said that it has to be Zabiha. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's... One of the big issues in contemporary American Islam that no one talks about, whether we apply to Zabiha meat, whether we apply to interest-bearing transactions, whatever it is, um, the form of the action might pass the test of fiqh, meaning, okay, you slaughtered the animal properly, okay? Uh, but the essence of the transaction, or the essence of the action may not be Islamic, meaning... 
yet you're not treating the animal ethically. And so what's going to happen is you're going to see a split in the Muslim community. Uh, the, the seeds of that are already there. Where one side will focus on making sure the fiqh is done correctly. Okay. Meaning the rules, the form is done correctly. And the other side is going to say that the essence has to be done correctly. Okay. Ideally you want both. I don't know if it's possible to find meat in America that is truly done from start to finish properly. <clears throat> because as far as I know, even the meat that we're told is pasture-fed and this and that, um, those cows that are fed that way and treated humanely, when it's time for the slaughter, they're electrocuted first. right? And then slaughter happens. And, and so... Uh, I think you can argue that none of the meat that is available in America is legit. Yeah. But I'm sure that option is still better than the other one. Like, yeah. who have been who have never seen sunlight before. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm saying that is there anything available right now that's 100%? No, I don't think so. And, and so, yeah, I go with the opinion that, all right, if the animal is treated from start to finish, if the slaughter is not done properly, but if the animal is treated from start to finish then that's the side I lean towards, right? That's also healthier meat anyway, right? Well, knows best, but these are one of the, the big questions that nobody talks about right now. Okay. Um, surprisingly, given his experience debating with atheists, D'Souza struggled to find a convincing answer to the problem. He first said that, given that humans can live forever in heaven, the suffering of this world is less important than it would be if our life in this world were the only life we have. What do you think? Wait for you guys next. Yeah. Like, given that humans can live forever in heaven. Okay. I don't like that because it belittles the suffering. Yeah. People in this world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't like that argument. So imagine saying, okay, your child has died, but you're going to be in heaven forever, so, you know, that's a small thing. That's, uh, I agree with your point. That's, should I continue? Sorry? Should I continue? Yeah, please. That still fails to explain why an all powerful and all good God would permit it. Relatively insignificant as it may be, from the perspective of all eternity, it it is still a vast amount of suffering, and the world would be better without it, or at least without most of it. Some say that we need to have some suffering to appreciate what it is like to be happy. Maybe, but we surely don't need as much as we have. So what do you think about the point he has in the parentheses? He probably put it in parentheses because it's... Not a strong argument at all. Yeah. Next, D'Souza argued that since God gave us life, we are not in a position to complain if our life is not perfect. Mm -hmm. What do you think? What do you think about that one? So, just the fact that I have been given life, it's a gift, so I should not complain. What? Because the life that you have been given could be drastically different from the person right next to you who okay. 
has like a life that's a million times better than yours or okay. a million times worse. Okay. So that's not just. And even the, the most simple argument is if that was uh, the Islamic outlook, then we would not be given dua. Correct? Because dua is basically, you know, an open door to ask for more and more and more. So his argument, I think, is okay in the sense that we should, if we were to say the fact that I'm given life is a gigantic blessing, okay? but the fact that I'm given dua, it gives me complete freedom to ask for even more, as much as I want. He used the example of being born with one limb missing. If life itself is a gift, he said, we are not wrong by being given less than we might want. In response, I pointed out that we condemn mothers who cause harm to their babies by taking alcohol or cocaine when pregnant. Yet since they have given life to their children, it seems that, on D'Souza's view, there is nothing wrong with what they have done. So what do you think about his response? I think that's a good idea. Because yeah. it's like saying I like you could have had this perfect, wholesome body, mm -hmm. but... Because of carelessness, yeah. you get less than what you could have had, uh -huh. but you should still be grateful. For yeah. And then he's also pointing out the hypocrisy, saying that, okay, if that's true, then you should not be condemning these women, right, about what they're doing to their babies. Because the baby still has life, right, even though the baby's addicted to alcohol and cocaine and has suffered brain damage and whatever else. So he's saying we're not even consistent, even if that was our view. fell back, as many Christians do when pressed, on the claim that we should not expect to understand God's reasons for creating the world as it is. It is as if an ant should try to understand our decisions. So puny is our intelligence in comparison to the infinite wisdom of God. This is the answer given in more poetic form in the book of Job. But Job. One, Job, is that you? Job. Oh, Job. But once we abdicate our own powers of reason in this way, we may as well believe anything at all. So what do you think about... Uh, this point that D'Souza is making that, all right, it's beyond our understanding, right? We had a, a touch of that in the Rumi book, mm -hmm. and then, and so he's saying it's kind of like an ant trying to understand a human. It's just beyond our understanding. Okay. So what do you think about that argument? And then, so his response is, well, okay, if that's the case, then we can, we can believe anything we want. Mm -hmm. But what do you think about D'Souza's argument? Everybody has to submit to something. Okay. Like, even if you say you only believe in science because you know, like, what's true in this, like, there's still, you, like you were saying, like, with gravity, like, you don't know why. Like, you have to submit to something uh -huh. that you don't know. Uh -huh. Like, you believe in gravity even though you don't know how it works, uh -huh. like that example. So I do think that that argument is okay because there's nothing that you can understand completely. Uh -huh. So sometimes you may not understand something, yeah. and that's okay. Uh -huh. It's okay if you don't understand something. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I'd modify D'Souza's point by saying, <clears throat> rather than say, you know, we should not expect to understand uh, God's reasons, we should say that, yeah, there will be a certain limit to your understanding, okay? which could be even related to your level of intelligence. Right? So one person might understand more than the other, 
It could be related to your education, your life experience. That I think there are things that a 10-year-old understands about how the life works that a 40-year-old doesn't understand. Right? Because a 10-year-old has, you know, this innocence and unfilteredness. And then there's a lot of things that a 40-year-old understands that a 10-year-old doesn't. Right? Um, and so there will be something beyond. Because if everything was 100% easy to figure out, then, for example, Luqman salam would not be an example in the Quran. Because I don't remember if we talked about Luqman in this class. One of the beliefs of Luqman, there's a number of different beliefs of Luqman, but one belief is that he had no access to wahi, he had no access to prophets, um, and he figured out all these things on his own. Okay? Mm -hmm. So it is possible. But why is Allah Ta'ala sending us prophets and, and scriptures? Is because most people are not going to be able to figure it out. Right. But by definition, if Allah is a superior intellect than mine, it's fair to assume that there's going to be some things I don't understand. And that's one of the beauties of Al-Baqarah right at the beginning, starting with Alif Lam Mim. Right. Why is it beginning with this unknown? I don't know. Why these three letters? I don't know. Does it change if we use two other letters? I don't know. Right. And so there is a point of unknown that will always be there in terms of either answering the question of why or what's the future. So the ghaib is always going to be there in some form. So yeah, uh, I think uh, D'Souza's argument is too general and I think his response is too general on that point. So, yeah. How do you know when to... When to, like, I guess, stop looking for answers in places that answers might not be attainable? Well, um, <clears throat> I would think about it this way. First, is it a central issue, or is it like a secondary issue? Mm -hmm. Central issue is La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, mm -hmm. right? For that, I should probably find as many answers as I feel I need to, to feel satisfied in my heart. One person needs nothing, another person might need a hundred answers, okay? Everything else, I think, is secondary. And what I mean by that is that if I can't find an answer for this particular fiqh issue, why is it like this? Uh, that shouldn't affect my faith. Right? So the shahada should affect my faith. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the issues of sharia and such, um, if I can't make sense of why, that should not be a matter that affects my faith. So, easy example. Okay, can't eat pork. Why? The real answer is because Allah says so. But we could say because it's so unhealthy. Well, if that's the case, then potato chips should be equally haram, right? Or whatever else should be equally haram. But those things are not, right? And so then I can, if I get stuck on that, and that's affecting my faith, then there's something else wrong with me. Something else wrong with how I'm understanding faith, right? And so how far should you go in question? As far as you need to. As far as you want to. Right? You know, some people, that's how their mind works. They need to answer questions. Most people, they don't care. Just tell me what to do. So, so that's the key. So the Prophet, peace is cautioning against answering, asking too many questions. Because then you're going to start to ask who created Allah. Right? And I think that applies to someone who's being undisciplined and reckless with their questions. Right? But... 
you know, suppose you need to live your life, you need answers to that. So you start with what is practical. And then you can move beyond that, depending upon what your intellect and aptitude are like. Moreover, the assertion that our intelligence is puny in comparison with God's, with God's presupposes that presupposes just the point that is under debate, that there is a God who is infinitely wise, as well as all-powerful and all-good. The evidence of our own eyes makes it more plausible to believe that the world is not created by God at all. If, however, we insist on divine creation, the God who made the world cannot be all-powerful and all-good. He must either be evil or evil. Well, okay, so let's, let's make sense of this paragraph. So, basically, it's saying that, all right, if we're saying our intelligence is puny in comparison with God's, which every Muslim would agree, mm -hmm. um, then um, is it possible to have a God who's all-wise, all-powerful, and all-good? And he's saying, if you look at all the world around you, uh, it's more plausible that it was not created by God at all. What do you think about that? So skip the first part. Um, but he's saying that if you look around the evidence, it seems more plausible that it's not created by God at all. What is he supporting that claim with? Yeah, exactly. That's the problem. Because then we would say, well, okay, the majority view from a science, scientific perspective is still the Big Bang. And that's saying something came from nothing. Mm -hmm. How? Right? The response philosophers give then is that, well, maybe what we have is actually also nothing. Okay, but that's not, there's no data to say that, support that. See what we're saying? So yeah, I think that sentence is kind of kind of ridiculous. That he's saying it's more plausible. I think it's more plausible that it's created by God. Uh, but what do you think then about his last point? Okay, this God cannot be all-powerful, all-knowledgeable, all, all and all-good. He must be either evil or a bungler. I mean, you don't have to go to extreme. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just like moderation. Mm -hmm. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's also the problem a lot of times when some people get into these debates, is that it's basically one extreme at debating another extreme. Yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts about this? Reflecting, next time we'll do godless morality, inshallah. Cool. Alright. Uh,